Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to Anti-Bullying 101. This podcast is designed to create awareness about the bullying epidemic and provide teachers, administrators, parents, and even students information about the dangers of bullying and why we have to take a comprehensive approach when dealing with the problem. My name is Jim Burns. I'm your host. I'm a retired high school administrator with over 40 years of experience in education. Currently, I'm a college instructor, and I've designed the Bullyproof Classroom, a graduate course that provides my students with permanent help, not temporary relief, as they battle the bullying epidemic. Enjoyed the podcast, everybody. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to Anti-Bullying 101. My name's Jim Burns, and I'm here to speak with you about bullying. I'm here to let you know that it's everywhere, let you know that it's in schools, communities, homes, politics, neighborhoods. It's all over the place. We all know that. We all know what I've been doing with this podcast. We all know what I've been doing for the last... 40 years in terms of trying to deal with this issue that just keeps popping up all over the place. It's in sports as well. We just heard, you know, that the ex-Met manager, Mickey Calloway, has been involved with uh, or was involved with sending inappropriate text messages and coming on to some of these young female reporters with uh, either through social media uh, networks or through text messaging, asking for nude shots and all kinds of other things, which which is sexual harassment, which is bullying, let's face it. You're using your power to try and dominate some young gal uh, and coerce her into doing something inappropriate. They finally found him out, and then, of course, you had the Jared Porter scene with the New York Mets who sent something like 60... Uh, text messages looking for sexual favors along with uh, sending photos of himself. So it's in sports, it's all over, it's everywhere, and we have to do something about it. Uh, We have to do what we can. Now, I have my website, The Bullyproof Classroom. You can go there, I'll put it in the episode description, bullyproofclassroom.com. You can become a premium podcast member. I'll have that in the episode description as well, where you can download great stuff to help you deal with bullying. Um, there's other things that you can do. You could keep your ears up, your eyes op- your uh, eyes open, and your antennas up 
when it comes down to watching out for this stuff, just watching out for it. The kids aren't in school that much right now. Most of them are involved with virtual learning. So you get a lot of cyberbullying where kids are picking on one another online and other things. It'll be interesting to see how our our group of kids adapts and adjusts and when they go back to school in September and how the new friendships will play out because they're, some of them may be going to different schools. Some of them may be uh, forming, have formed new friendships with this online learning. There's a lot of different things that have happened over the course of the last year. And uh, come September, from what I understand, we should have just about everybody vaccinated, so it should be a safe environment to, uh, to go into. It's the schools. So hopefully that'll um, start to bring things back to somewhat, quote, normal, uh, end quote. Um, but it's been tough. It's been tough on the kids. And it's been tough on adults, too, because if you're like me, you're 66 years old. I always, I worked from home for the last uh, 17 years. I retired from public education. My wife works from home, and we have a young daughter that's involved with virtual learning. And you get under each other's feet. You really do. And I don't think it's good to have a young kid at home all day long. I really don't. Uh, they tend to rely too heavily on their parents at that point because the parents are the only ones that are around unless you have a couple of friends that are in what's called a pod where you know that they're safe. You don't do much with other kids and that's not good. It's just not good. So hopefully by September we'll be out from under this pandemic. I don't think we're ever going to be out from under it. Uh, maybe not for at least another year from now. We're going to get vaccinated. We're going to have our shots. We're going to, we may have to continue to wear masks and so on. But I think once everybody gets vaccinated, it's going to take another six months to return to normal. So I'm looking at all of 2021. Uh, before things really start to look like they did. I'm hoping, I live down at the Jersey Shore, and I'm hoping that folks who like to come and visit here and go to Long Beach Island, which is where I live, um, can have that opportunity again. Uh, because the beaches, you know, you have to be spread out. You can walk on the beach and sit on the beach, but when you've got massive numbers of people that want to come down and they rent housing in groups, young people breathing on one another, you know, it, it becomes a very risky proposition. So I'm hoping that they have the opportunity to enjoy themselves and not be at risk while they're doing it. So that's where we're at. Now, I had started um, a series. It was a two-part series. This is the second part. And the title level was, Who is Jim Burns? I've been doing these podcasts now for three years. And um, 
you know my biography somewhat if you've checked into any of the information on me. But you probably don't know a lot about Jim Burns himself. And without being overly vulnerable, because I do, will be vulnerable. I will share information with you that uh, maybe I'm taking a risk at sharing, but I feel like it's better if everybody knows the truth about me as a, so they know who I really am and what I'm really about. And I left off the last podcast. I was in college. I was about 20 years old. I had met in college my first wife. By the way, in high school, I didn't date a lot. I played baseball and was doing a lot of different things. And when I got to college, I think I shared this already, but I'll just back it up. I ended up dating somebody and it wasn't the very best relationship, but the bottom line is I ended up marrying her after five years. And you might as well say she was the only gal I ever dated. Because I didn't date a lot in high school. I mean, I went to the junior prom and went out. And you go out on a date, but I never had a steady girlfriend. So I have this steady gal that I'm with. And we've had, we had our share of discussions, arguments, fights, and debates, and all kinds of different things. Yet I still married her. And after years of introspection and therapy and discussion... You find out that you, you do that because you don't think anyone else is going to marry you. You don't think anyone else even is giving you a second look, which was the furthest thing from the truth because even through high school there were plenty of gals that had an interest in me. I just didn't have any interest in them. And in college there was a ton of people that had an interest in me. But I was, I was too myopic and just had my sights set on dating one gal. And let me explain something to you. For me, that was a mistake. That was a mistake because I did not get out there and see the differences between her and other people and really make a smart decision in terms of my future with one person. But I went through college. I went through college. Did not do well. They almost threw me out. Uh, at the end of my freshman year, I had a cumulative average of a 1.0. Um, and with the help of a lot of people and God and my father saying to me he's going to sell the bar, which I was raised over a bar, I've shared that, I ended up graduating with a 2.9 cumulative average. Selling the bar frightened me because I didn't have anything to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. But I stuck with it. I attended bar while I was in college, the whole bit. I stuck with the schooling. I did my best. I plodded along, and I made it through, and I ended up getting a degree in special education. 
And I also got a master's degree in special education, and I also got certified as an administrator. Uh, so I was able to be a principal of a school. Uh, there was a lot of things that I could do. So my very first job was in a private school for emotionally disturbed kids. These kids were right out of Jamesburg prison. They were frightening. They were scary. The, and, and it was a physical place where you had men there. And I was a man, but I couldn't do it like they could do it, where they would take kids that were 16 years old and shove them in a corner as discipline. And I, I could never figure out how they could do it. But they did, and they commanded the respect of that teacher. The teacher commanded their respect because the teacher would beat them up. There's no question. I couldn't do that. And I was failing dismally there. Failing. Learning, but failing. See, that's the difference. See, if you're going to fail, learn while you're doing it. Because if you don't learn while you're doing it, you're going to fail all the time. And you need to learn in the process of failing. And you'll need to learn in the process of success as well. So it was around May. And they had put a, a new kid in my class named Donald, and Donald was a huge kid who had an interest in doing nothing but listening to cassette tapes, record players, uh, which they had then, no streaming, um, uh, just listening to music all day long. And my aide said to me, what are you going to do with him? And I said, nothing, let him sit there and listen to the records. So, that's what we did. And we used to have these activity periods in the school. And Donald went to an activity period and somebody came into the classroom and broke one of Donald's cassette tapes. And Donald must have been tipped off that one of the tapes was broke. And came back into the room like a bull in a china shop, went crazy, and I was didn't know what to do with them. I asked my aide to go get help. I finally managed to get a hold of him, restrain him, and lay him down on the floor on his stomach to keep him from getting out of control. And this kid stands up with me on his back, runs around the room, and jumps out the window taking me with him. I end up underneath him. He breaks my fall. We were about 25 feet up. Luckily, I landed in some grass, which helped. Um, he got up and took off. No workman's comp. No help. I walked home because I lived around the corner from the school. I had like full body whiplash. And I never went back to the school. I just went back to get my last check. They didn't help me. They did not help me at all. 
and I started making application to work in different schools and I made an application to teach in a school in, in a town called Plainfield. Plainfield had an opening for a teacher who uh, was special ed and needed to, would needed him to work with neurologically impaired kids, and that's what I that's what I majored in. So I get the I get the job, but I don't get the job that I thought I was going to get because the director of special services came to me and he said, "We have something else that may be blossoming for you." We're starting a, a another class for emotionally disturbed kids at a, at one of the other middle schools, and we'd like to give you that job. And I said, I don't want to work with emotionally disturbed kids anymore. And he said, Well, if you want to work, you got to take this this the job we're offering. So I take the job. The same behaviors I dealt with in the private school were there because all these kids came back from private school into my classroom. Brutal. Had no idea what to do. None. And I didn't do very well in terms of my evaluations either. But as I said before, if I'm going to fail, I'm going to learn in the process. So... I went over and I observed other teachers who had emotionally disturbed kids in their class and I got a handle on trying to ha deal with these kids and what I discovered was if you want to be successful do something that nobody else could do and I could do something that nobody else could do. I could work with emotionally disturbed kids and nobody wanted to do it. <clears throat> until I reached a point where I couldn't figure out who was right and who was wrong anymore. Because you can only work with those kids for so long. And you got to remember, I was raised in an emotionally disturbed environment. Over a bar, my dad had PTSD, my mother had her issues. So I was around emotionally disturbed kids for the better part of my life. And adults. Except uh, up to that point, anyway. So I made application to take another job in a resource room, and that was in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. And I got that job. And I'm not going to bore you with the details, but it was a pretty easy job. You know, kids came in, and they, you gave them help with their work, and so on. And of course, by now, I'm married. To the gal that I went to high school, college with. We end up saving a few dollars. We lived in Jersey City because it was around her parents. We, uh, we finally made the decision we were going to buy a house because we saved a couple bucks and we bought a house down in Bricktown, New Jersey. And um, I looked for another job because I didn't want to drive from Scotch Plains to Bricktown, and I got a job in a town called Freehold Regional. It was a township, and I worked in a school called Marlboro High School. Once again, kids that were emotionally disturbed, but more clinical in nature. 
worked with those kids for six years. And I ended up, and along the way, my personal life wasn't going very well. And in the process of working in Marlboro, uh, I ended up divorced. And what I will tell you is this. I wanted to be an administrator because I had the credentials to do it. But I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to take orders. And I really bullied the supervisor that I was working with. And finally, through an epiphany, through the understanding of some godly principles, whatever it may be, I figured out that I have not been the type of person that I needed to be. And I changed my entire outlook on how I saw administration, how I saw people who were my boss. I apologized to the man who I had given such a hard time to. And he accepted it, and I took the time to help him make the, his department successful. And a job opened up and was a vice principal of a school in the Union County Educational Services Commission. And because of that man, I got the job. He gave me a great reference. And had I not turned that around, I never would have gone into administration. Now, I'm not saying going into administration was the very best thing that I could do. I probably would have done better staying in teaching because I would have been able to last longer because administration burned me out. But that began my administrative career, and I stayed as an administrator from 1989 until, God, uh, 99, uh, 2004, and then I went back and I worked as an administrator in a charter school for a wonderful man who helped me out. And so I was an administrator for 16 or 17 years. And I discovered more about leading more about running schools, running departments, dealing with uh, special ed department, clinical issues. The largest school I had had 3,600 kids in it. Um, the smallest had 500. Uh, and I spent my time learning how to be a good leader. And I can't say that I always did a good job, but... I always knew that I was trying hard to do a good job and learned from my mistakes. Now, I, through all this, I remarried and had two kids. And they are Sarah and Grace as I sit here at my, in my office staring at their picture. And... Uh, it seemed like I couldn't make it past the 10-year point in any marriage, and I ended up divorced once again. So I'm now divorced again, 
now I'm paying child support and I'm doing what I can to deal with my kids who are nine and three. I'm still working as an administrator through all of this. And I was dating. I had some long-standing relationships with other people, other women. But for the most part, I lived alone for 14 years. Now, let me give you guys out there a little bit of advice. In 1996, I built the house that my kids were raised in. Beautiful home, 2,500 feet, great place to raise a family, good schools, the whole bit. And my wife and I ended up divorced. And of course, she would prefer to sell the house. And I wanted to hang on to it. So I said to her, I said, why don't we do this? I said, why don't we refinance the house and put it in my name? And I'll let you live there and I'll pay the mortgage. Now that was crippling for me financially, but I held on to the only asset, the only asset that I ever was going to have, and that was my home. So for something like, oh, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years, I paid the mortgage on the house, and we had an agreement that when the kids were grown, she would move out and I'd take the house back. And we did. And we did, and I ended up with this house back. And the very interesting thing is, in the process, as we were getting closer and closer to the kids being grown and, and uh, moving out of the house, I ended up meeting a lovely gal his name was Pat, who I ended up marrying, but I was able to marry Pat and bring her into a home that her and I could work on together, figure out together, we could do things to it, we could rearrange stuff, we could put, put in new floors, do the backyard. We Now it's our house. And Pat is a great gal, and she, before I met her, she had adopted an Ethiopian baby who is now going to be 11 years old. I married Pat. I met Pat in 2012, so it's nine years this year. And I married her in 2017, and she's been with me through thick and thin and helped me with ruptured quadricep tendons, uh, different things, problems with one of my daughters. She has stuck with me through it all, and she has been not only a great wife, but my best friend. And that's who I am married to today, Pat. She cares for me. She looks out for me. She loves my children. I love her little girl, whose name is Zoe beautiful gal uh, who I've grown close to and I'm dad.
her she calls me dad and that's it you know and she doesn't know anything else she knows me as her father and i she is my stepdaughter and we care for her i care for her like i cared for my own um so the bottom line the bottom line is i am here now and i'm staying here i'm 66 years old and that's i live down in an area close to long beach island i've seen it all i've done a lot i see that bullying has taken over our country I started really looking into it probably around 2014 but I always had an interest because I was bullied myself. And sometimes the best way to deal with the disease is to catch it yourself. And I caught it and I had it. And I was beat up, ridiculed and abused as a kid and I never really knew how to handle confrontations as an adult, but it took me a long time. to grow comfortable in my own skin. So if you're having trouble, you know, fret not. You'll find your way. It just takes time, but you got to put the effort in and you got to you, you got to rely on your own fortitude. You got to rely on others for help, therapists and other people, and you got to rely on God and God should be at the top of the list. because God will give you God will give you what you ask for. He gives us enough grace to last each day. And then we need more. And we need to make sure that we pray for the wisdom, the grace and the strength to make it through difficult times. Denzel Washington gave a commencement speech at the University of Pennsylvania. And one of the things he said was when you go to bed at night put your slippers way under your bed. So when you get up in the morning you got to get down on your knees to get them. And he says while you're down there make sure that you pray and thank God for what you have and to help and to um ask for the strength to make it through another day. We wake up we wake up each day and it's by God's grace and love for us that we do I just want to read to you a very short um piece that I uh, had picked up on Facebook just uh, recently and I I find it to be appropriate right now to um share this with you. So if you give me a moment. Okay, here we go. These are six little stories with lots of meaning. Once all the vill- villagers decided to pray for rain. On the day of prayer, all the people gathered, but only one boy came with an umbrella. That's faith. When you throw babies in the air they laugh because they know you'll catch them. That's trust. Every night we go to bed without any assurance 
of being alive the next morning, but we still set an alarm to wake up. That's hope. We plan big things for tomorrow in spite of zero knowledge of the future. That's confidence. We see the world suffering, but still we get married and have children. That's love. And on an old man's shirt was written a sentence. I'm not 80 years old. I'm sweet 16 with 60 years of experience. That's attitude. Have a happy day and live your life like these six stories. Remember, good friends are the rare jewels of life, difficult to find and impossible to replace. No guarantees in this world. No guarantees we'll wake up. But we have to have the faith and the trust and the love and the hope that things will work out well. I've been relying on trust and hope and love and my faith for years. And I would encourage you guys to do the same thing. I talk about the four dimensions, which I got from Stephen Covey. And the last one is the spiritual dimension. See, we're spiritual beings living in a physical world, not physical beings living in a spiritual world. And what we have to realize is that we pray, we talk to ourselves, our conscience bothers us when things don't go right, you know, and so on. All of that funnels into us spiritually, and we have to be aware of it. I've made it through. Today actually is my mother's birthday, who's no longer with us. She's 101 years old, would have been. Today is my wife's birthday. My wife was born on the same date as my mother. My wife is 61. My mother would have been 101. So... I'm grateful that I have a wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and is blessed by the Lord. And that's how I see it. And I'm thrilled that I was able to share my story with you. I am concerned about bullying, but I'm more concerned about the hate and despair that people have in this world and the racism and the, the slurs and the, the idea that one's better than the other and you, can't, you don't even know who you're talking to. We need to love one another, folks. Just love one another. Love is an act. Love is an act. It's not a feeling. I could say I love my wife, but if I don't act in love, it means nothing. Always act in love and always make sure that you're kind, caring, and respectful to those that are around you and who you come in contact with on a daily basis. It's just as easy to be kind and caring as it is to be unkind 
and miserable. I do these podcasts because I love you. I care about you. I care about the world. And I care about bullying. And I want to get as much information out there for everyone to hear. So that's who Jim Burns is. Jim Burns. His birthday was January 4th. He just turned 66. You've been listening. You've been listening. As I always say, my name is Jim Burns. We'll see you again in the next episode, hopefully. Tell your friends about this podcast. Sign up to be a premium member. Do what you can to take a look at the website and the store. I'm going to put something else in there, too. There's a book that I just put together. It's called the it's Jim Burns' Educational Bible. What it is, it's... Let me count this. One, two, three, four. Four, five, six. It's eight books rolled into one. All I did was compress all the books into one big volume. You might like it. There's some repeat information in there, but I think you'd have a good time with it. So that's another thing I could throw up on the website. I might stick it in the store. I might give it away. I don't know, but I think you will enjoy it. Once again, my name is Jim Burns. Thank you for listening to Anti-Bullying 101.